Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Matt S., Jackie A., Ryan S., and Jared W. We've got a new guest joining the show today, uh, CEO and one of the founders of Nomad Royalty, Vincent Metcalf, has joined us. Nomad Royalty is a precious metals-focused royalty and streaming company that holds about 11 various stage assets with six of them cash flowing now. The company is listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NSR and also on the U.S. OTC markets under the symbol NSRXF. Vincent, it's good to have you on the show, and how are you, sir? Very good, and thank you very much for having me. Very, It's a pleasure to, to have the occasion to uh, to discuss Nomad in more detail on your show. Yeah, it's great to have you on, and let's kick things off here, Vincent. Uh, maybe your views on the natural resource sector here, metals prices, and any items of caution that you see. Well, you know, we we live in a very, um, I would say, interesting world and interesting times at the moment. So there's a lot of volatility um, in various sectors, um, I would say, in, in the market in general. So from a, a resource, a global resource point of view, I think obviously there's there's obviously some different revolutions happening in, in the sense of, you know, you're seeing the EV revolution. So the, the base metals and the copper uh, demand will, I think, keep growing um, substantially. From a precious metal point of view, I think with volatility increasing, um, there is um, you know more and more demand from from different investors and different, I would say, groups um, that you know are looking for a bit more stability in their portfolio. So I think the, the whole point of having gold as a hedge um, is being increasingly, you know, being brought forward for, for, from the investor community. Um, so I think for for both, you know, the base metal front and also precious metals in general, I think we're we're in a position where over the next, you know, in the midterm, say two to five years, and then on a longer term, or five ten years, I think there's going to be substantial demand coming from both markets. Um, so I think it's definitely a good time to, for for investors to be looking at resource stocks at the moment. Yeah, Vincent, and you know, certainly you follow all of the natural resource sector. You know, with gold and and things starting to, I guess the the bear market, uh, you know, and gold and copper and had kind of stopped in late 2015 and and really had that first leg up in 2016, and then we had a couple of years there with a little bit of choppy action, and then we've gone higher. What's your thoughts on time frame going forward, and what would you expect given gold's past behavior? In past bull markets, what would you expect to see conservatively uh, gold to move to in terms of price in U.S. dollars, and what time frame do you think that'll happen? Yeah, well, I'm I'm definitely not an economist of, of any sort, um, but if you look at I would say the last cycle, um, say if you take the 2005 to 2012 13 uh, period, um, in in times of uncertainties, um, we we see the gold price obviously perform very well. Um, we're definitely in one of those times at the moment. Um, in terms of where the price uh, goes, I mean, in that previous period, we saw gold price almost go to $2,000 and kind of reset at levels around the $1,300, $1,400 gold um, long term afterwards. So I think in this, in, in, in our current environment today, 
um, I wouldn't be surprised to see gold uh, go near near 3,000 and perhaps retreat at say a 2,400 or 2,200 long-term level. Um, I think from everything we've been seeing around the world in terms of um, money printing from the various governments uh, in the world, um, we're definitely going to see inflation um, at one point, um, you know, be be a real factor. So I think. From to, to that to that end, I think it's going to help um, support a, a stronger gold price going forward. You know, last time we were $1,900 in 2011, and it seems that uh, in all the past bull markets for gold, it's always at least doubled. A doubling from its high uh, has occurred in all of the times uh, going back, if I have my history right. So I think it's very conservative to assume that that we would see three to 4,000. And I don't know about higher than that, but certainly I think that it can perform as it has in the past, because if you plug in the extraordinary circumstances that we have today with uh, money printing and lack of fiscal responsibility and really disrespect for currency, you know, I think that we'll get there. Well, let's go over your background for a moment. Why don't you share a bit on your background, maybe some past successes and failures, and then what attracted you to help start up and lead Nomad? Um, so I'm a finance background. Uh, originally um, fell into the mining sector when I started a, a banking career uh, in Toronto uh, back in 2005. Um, and that allowed me to really uh, meet a, a very diverse uh, group of people uh, and companies. And I think really, um, you know, the, the mining world truthfully, um, you know, uh, bit me and I, I caught the bug. And I think from that point on, really, I, I knew I was going to be in the mining sector probably for the rest of my career. Um, it's a, it's an industry that's uh, full of very, very uh, entertaining and very uh, diverse type of crowds. And they, they bring you to a lot of different places in the world. And I think from from that point of view, I think it, it definitely expands, uh, you know, your, your, your knowledge and um, you're able to to, to see different parts of the worlds and you know most at most places that you know no human being typically go to uh you know in the middle of certain deserts or i i remember telling to to some of my friends i've been to, to mexico about 12 times never saw a beach so you end up in these places which are are truly remarkable um and you're also able to do truly re remarkable things and um you know the, the mining sector you allows you to go into places and and really look at um you know the, the world in a different uh for, from a different lens you you look at a piece of land and some people see uh you know potential for condos potential for uh you know farming and so on and i think from a mining perspective is is you're able to look at a piece of land that you, you might think is barren but you do a bit of work on it you do science and you're able to actually create real value and tangible value and i think that's something that really attracted me um to this sector um, so after about eight to ten years of banking, um, I, I swapped over to to the corporate world, and you know um, that allowed me to also kind of have a different uh, view in terms of meeting investors, meeting what um, you know, and understanding what they want in terms of uh, of product. Uh, so I would say in the eight, first eight to ten years worked a lot with corporates, kind of structuring deals and you know doing M and A and equity deals, and then the last five or six was really more on. Uh, meeting investors and also uh, really learning uh, and, and working directly into the royalty and streaming sector. So, you know, going back to your question, you know, what were the, the good things, the bad things that you've learned? I think, you know, making sure that you 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 tailor a product that that answers what your investor wants. I think that's very important. Um, and also, when you know, we're in the royalty sector right now, so. 
where we think that there's the most, I would say, risk is is kind of between that feasibility and construction phase where, you know, typically as you go through permitting, through development, there's, you know, that timeline that is usually two to three years ends up being, you know, more five to five to six years uh, because, you know, there's so many inherent risks in, in mining and development that typically these timelines um, you know, tend to tend to be longer than what what the developers uh, believe. Uh, you know, originally. So where we want to focus on, and where we think the royalty sector is, has done very well over the last few years, is investing at both ends of those. I, I would say um, phases. So either very early on the greenfield type discovery. Uh, end of things or very near cash flow. So when you're almost done with construction or when you're going through that construction decision, um, you know, most of those risks have been de-risked and you're, you're obviously closer to production uh, and cash flow. So I think that's where from, you know, learning um, and watching the, 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 the royalty sector, our management team is now in a position to really execute on a plan that we put forward in terms of really, you know, minimizing uh, the, all types of risks, which, you know, risk in mining take a lot of different forms. So you have, you know, jurisdictional risk, you have operational risk, you have um, commodity risk, you have, um, you know, asset concentration type risk, um, and really maximize two things. And that's really the exposure to resources, exposure to um, to commodity. Um, and and really that's, that's the beauty of the, the royalty sector is that you're able to do these things and you're able to build a portfolio that that minimizes that volatility. So um, that's why I, I would think, you know, the main reason why when we had the occasion of starting a new royalty company, um, we, we went forward with that idea. Let's talk just high level capital structure of the company. Uh, why don't you share that with us? And then also the current cash and facilities available uh, at the company's disposal. And then also, uh, Vincent, if you will, the major shareholders here. Yeah. So as you pointed out, we're um, you know we're the newest uh, royalty and streaming company in the sector. Um, we currently have actually 12 assets now because we closed one last week. So, um, but we have six that are in in in, um, in, in cash flow. Um, we are four months into the uh, the trading of, of of Nomad on on the TSX. Our two major shareholders um, from a function of um, you know, both Orion and Yamana vended in assets to our to our company, um, and so Yamana ended up taking about 77% um, of the shares of of the combined entity, and and Yamana ended up taking about 13%. Um, as we keep growing this 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 business, and as we keep offering our shares in, in, in for for considerations, um, we are we we will be diluting them over the years. So at the moment, I would say that there's probably about 90% of the shares that are in the hands of um, Yamana, Ryan, and, and management. And and really, you know, this is really just the beginning. We understand that we need to work on having more liquidity. We understand that we have to work on, you know, uh, increasing the registry of, of shareholders. And that's something that is very uh, much at the forefront of, of what we want to do. We are, you know, we under, when we sat down with with Orion and Yamana, uh, when we created this company, we we told them that at one point we would need them to be offering some, um, you know, liquidity uh, to the market um, to to make sure that we had the ability of bringing in the, the the larger financial institutions into our stock, and that it would actually have a positive effect on on their shares going forward. Because as we create that liquidity, as we create that interest from from the bigger funds, we'll we'll have bigger, you know, stronger support. Um, and one of the main things 
you know, when we created this company, we actually um, priced our deal at one times NAV. Um, and for those that are, I guess, less familiar with with the streaming and royalty business, the the royalty business, you know, for years and years now um, has been trading at premiums versus the producers or versus the developers. So if you look at where we are today, uh, the mid caps, the producers, they all trade between, you know, one and a half times and two, I would say three times NAV for the most part. So, you know, we have that arbitrage in the sector. So by pricing our deal um, at 90 cents and, you know, Yamana and, and Narayan taking the shares at 90 cents, we priced that deal at one time NAV, knowing full well that, you know, as we keep executing over the course of the next two, three years, that re-rating would translate into the share price. And that's really the philosophy and, and what we we sold, um, you know, Orion and Yaman on is that re-rating potential um, that they would, you know, actually crystallize more value over time than just selling their assets for one times NAV um, to one of the major um, companies in the sector. Can you just cover for us uh, shares outstanding here and then also your cash and facilities? Yeah, so at the moment we have about 524 million shares outstanding. Um, we haven't done any rollbacks of any sort. Um, so the shell at the at, from the outset had 30 million shares, and then Orion and, and Yamana took back shares. So that's why the the, the share count is quite high. Um, but you know, from a financing point of view, we we only did one financing so far at 13.3 million, which was concurrent with that original um, with that original uh, deal. However, we did put in a credit facility in place, um, uh, which is at uh, $75 million US and is led by uh, Scotia, um, CIBC and, and RBC. Um, so, and that's very important for, for companies in our sector because that will allow us to, 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 to write, you know, bigger deals and really allow us to, to look at, you know, um, doing new deals with, 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 um, with partners and um and that's where when you look at how the the Wheatons of the worlds and, and the francos have done over the past few years is they've been using their credit facility to buy these deals at around one times nav and then they you know they essentially um pre they get they get the benefit of the higher multiples at which they trade directly from the market so that's where you're able to grow exp exponentially and grow relatively quickly because you're able to leverage that arb factor when you talk about the, uh, you know, your guys' market cap where you guys are today and just looking at some of the other companies, you know, we've seen a lot of companies that get in kind of the market cap where Nomad is today. We've seen them jump over or even actually earlier sometimes we've seen them come on to New York Stock Exchange, Amex and get listed. Uh, you know, we've seen that recently with Mavericks Metals. We've seen that with Metalla Royalty, and we've seen that with a number of other companies. Um, what's your guys' thought on that? Because you guys are of, of that size already. Are you guys looking at uh, this kind of a listing sometime in the next year or two? Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, you know, from the outset, we didn't want to come out. I think the main thing for investors to understand about Nomad, this is going to be a very transactional focused company. So we're going to be doing a lot of deals. And, you know, We've we've actually gone through the process of listing on the NYC uh, with our previous company, so we know what it entails in terms of you know compliance from a you know SOX point of view, from a you know just a fees point of view, higher DNO uh, insurance costs. There's a lot of things that come with that listing. Obviously, there there is a benefit of having you know a stronger um, I would say pool of investors on the U.S. front. So that is definitely something that's in consideration. 
but I think for the next say six to twelve months, we're really going to be focused on on building the company and, and and it's just you know not being listed on New York Stock Exchange actually allows us to be a lot more flexible in the terms of uh, transactions that we're able to do. Um, and you know we have a relatively small team at the moment. We have there's four of us. Um, so really the, the focus is on cash generation to fuel those those higher multiples um, and really keep building the, the portfolio out. Um, I mean, we 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 definitely think that the you know the NYC listing is will come, uh, but it's not a focus of ours. I would say within the next couple of quarters. Yeah, that makes sense because I mean the company has only been listed on the TSX for a period of time here. So I think from a timeline standpoint, I, I think that it would make sense at yeah. least a year out from here. We'll talk about GNA costs for a moment. Um, the company has mentioned a goal of having low GNA as compared to sector peers. How is the GNA structured, and what can investors expect on this side? Well, it, it, that flows well into the conversation as we just kind of covered the um, the the NYC aspects and and why we didn't go there because we want to mi minimize the GNA costs at the moment. Um, so we uh, first of all we chose um, not to be offshore either. So all our assets were actually brought back onshore in Canada. We we did it in a tax neutral way where we were able to bump up some of the taxables to to alleviate um, any, you know, uh, I would say um, the, for, for, from the transfer of the offshore assets to be onshore. But we believe that going forward, um, it actually minimized some of the, the risk associated with, with offshore businesses now. Um, and from a competition point of view, having been in the business for five, six years, we can't say that we truly saw the benefit of having an offshore structure um from a competition point of view when we're bidding for assets so we, that's why we really wanted to to bring everything back on shore and it also minimizes that those gna costs because more and more now the, the the offshore businesses need their own independent management teams so that means you're doubling every every employee and every uh, management personnel so you know instead of having four um four of us we'd probably be eight to ten um just to cover that that office because you, you have to show management teams in those offshore businesses now you can't just have a postal office so from a gna point of view we want to minimize that as much as possible we want to make sure that we have um and that translate into to delivering more uh, value to our to our shareholders so we we see the the low gna costs um, you know, very much associated with what we return to shareholders from a dividend policy. Um, so the, the less we pay on, G, on, on, on GNA, the more we're able to, to pay on the dividend side of things. And so, so right now, um, right now for, for this year, we're probably looking at cash GNA of around two and a half million dollars. Um, and I would say that the expected cash GNA for the next year, uh, when we're, you know, I would say at steady state, we're probably between four and five million. Um, this year, what's even better for for investors is that we, the three, the three of us execs have have committed not to take uh, cash salaries, so we're taking shares instead on on a quarterly basis, and that's something that we really wanted to focus on um, because we want to show the investors that we're fully aligned with them. Um, so whatever is good for us is good for the investors. Whatever is good for the investors is good for us. Um, and that's a mentality, you know, really we want to be keep that top of mind for investors is is to aim to have that low GNA cost and probably one of the lowest costs in the sector in general uh, to make sure that that we minimize those costs for the shareholders and that we focus on returning capital or or reinvesting that capital into new uh, to new investments. 
Vincent, what is your position on the cash flow use going forward, excess capital at the company? Do you support dividends only? Do you see that continuing to build the cash balance for new deals is important? Share buyback if the shares obviously are valued correctly. Um, how do you approach these different methods of capital use? What's your view on these different vehicles? So the dividend for us is very important, and that's why we've already in, in, you know put it in place. Um, really, I think having a very strong dividend uh, will be very attractive for the investors, and, and we have the benefit of having um, you know marketed a royalty company for five six years, and I would say that the generalist investor is always looking for a, a dividend. Um, I would say it, the majority of the time. So when we're building this company we want this business to be between three and five billion hopefully within the next two to three years so it's going to be very very high growth um and we want to make sure that our the product that we're building caters to that generalist and investors um so having that dividend is very important in terms of how we size it um at the moment we we, we announced a two cent um dividend annually uh, which represents about a 1.5 percent yield and and really we are looking at um, at building on that. That represents about a third of operational cash flow. Um, it's really a start for us. As our our portfolio matures, uh, we would expect to to keep increasing that dividend. Um, in terms of you know uh, with the level at which we'd get, it wouldn't be crazy to think that we'd we'd return up to 50% of operational cash flow um, over time. We are looking. Um, you know, to, to, to keep increasing our, our, our portfolio. So we want to keep some cash on the balance sheet. But as I pointed out before, you know, having that that credit facility um, allows us to, to look at, at, at deals and using that credit facility. And perhaps once we've been able to execute on a deal, show the market what we're doing, um, to, to go in the market and, and refinance that credit facility. So we're not looking at at the credit facility as being a permanent part of the capital structure. So we're not big fans of debt, but to use it as a, as an instrument to buy things, that's what we want to do. Um, in terms of buyback, um, you know, we, we have a very, very tight float at the moment. So that's not something that we have in the cards. Uh, but if it, if, if we did get to a point at one point where we, we thought the value was, you know, definitely not reflective of our business. Maybe we could look at that, but I think that for now, it's not, it's not something that uh, that we do. Uh, we really want to keep increasing that liquidity. So by re removing shares of this of um, of the capital structure doesn't re really help us on that front. Yeah, and I think all of these options should be on the table for use at different times because I think it, throughout these these cycles of these of these companies and so forth, I think all of these options become more attractive over the other at different times, um, but they're all needed. With what you guys have is, is cash flowing assets right now, what's your thought on if the deal allows, what's your thought on taking physical delivery of gold and silver and keeping a portion of that also in the company portfolio as inventory? Do you see that there's value in that rather than always being in dollars? It's uh, Yeah, it is. It's definitely something that we've thought about in the past. I mean, we receive our, our gold um, all in physical, so we actually do our our own our, our own gold sales. But it's definitely something that that we've thought about. I mean, our, the biggest competition to the royalty companies right now, uh, in terms of investors, is uh, is investors, you know, just buying the, the the gold ETF for physical gold. So if we're able to structure a way 
where we would keep some of that gold on our balance sheet. I think there's there, there could be something very creative done here. Um, and it's definitely something that we've thought of in, in the past. I mean, right now, um, you know, we're selling our gold and we, we want to book the sales to make sure that our, our, our investors understand what type of revenue and what type of deliveries we're getting from these various assets, given that we're a very new company. But I think that, again, looking forward, we wouldn't be, uh, it's definitely something that we've thought about. I, I can tell you that. Um, because keeping that, you know, at the end of the day, the investors coming into our stock want exposure to gold. So if we're able to keep some of that gold uh, and in, in, increase that that exposure, I think it's definitely something that, that at least we feel is in line with, with the investor um, their mentality. Yeah, I think so, because this is kind of a supplemental value add. And I think as time goes on here, I think it's becoming increasingly important when you have an investor that has the shares, they're realizing that growth in the shares, and but also, um, you know, if they can see a dividend policy that pays out or the company decides to hold inventory for their view on gold and silver appreciating, that also can be a portion. I understand cash flow is also needed, but a very interesting kind of set of circumstances and some some strategy involved there. Talk about the uh, present paying assets of the company. Why don't you just kind of you know, give us just an overview of that portfolio and also what your expected growth is over the next one to two years. Right now, we have obviously a very diversified portfolio for a company that's only been in business for for four or five months now. Um, the the important thing for us when we were creating the, this business was to really focus on 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 having a good proportion of our assets in cash flow. Uh, and really, the the reason behind that is when you look at the valuations of the big senior companies, you know, the more percentage of assets that you have in production, typically the higher the valuation you get. Um, so t- for us to start with, you know, 90% of our assets on the exploration and development stage was not something that we wanted to um, to entertain. Uh, we understand this business. We know it needs cash flow. We know it, you know, you, you need to control GNA because it's, it's basically a, an immediate cost. Um, so really for us was structuring a, a business that had production. So at the moment, we have um, obviously a few different assets that are in cash flow. We have one in Ivory Coast called Bonacro, which is a you know an op- a mine operated by Allied. We have uh, the South Arturo mine, which is operated by Nevada Gold Mines. We have the uh, Mercedes mine, which is operated by Premier uh, Gold Mines. We also have uh, Guacamaya, which is in production, uh, operated by the Mineros, and Equinox Gold, which is in operation. Um, which um, they, sorry, RDM, the, the mine, which is operated by Equinox Gold in Brazil. Um, and we also have another instrument, which is uh, a gold loan, which is payable by, by Premier. Um, and that structure is essentially for the next three years, Premier delivers us a thousand ounces a quarter. Um, so so that uh, uh, it's it's a very interesting um, dynamic because we're able to to get that very steady um, cash flow over the next, uh, you know, three years. And the, the great thing about that that portfolio in general is, as you know, as as I pointed out, so you've got assets in Nevada, you've got assets in uh, Mexico, um, Argentina, Brazil, Ivory Coast. Um, it's very diversified. So we actually think that actually, you know, gives us a a, a very um, good uh, portfolio with limited volatility. If you look at the impacts of pandemic. Um, had on these assets, 
you know, the Ivory Coast asset had zero days of shutdown. Um, the ones in Brazil and Argentina had about five days each. Uh, in Mexico, we had about a, a, two, a month and a half. Um, so you could see that if we would have been, you know, just, I would say, uh, in Mexico or just in Canada, which I, when, when you look at the, the assets, the operating assets in, in the mining space that were shut down the longest, uh, the ones in Canada, you know, were the most impacted. And, and that's where we think as you grow a portfolio and as you add assets to that portfolio, having a lot of different jurisdiction actually minimizes that, that risk profile. So that's where we think our, you know, the portfolio, the strength of our portfolio comes from is having a lot of various um, assets and a lot of different jurisdictions. And Vincent, just for the audience, so they can get their head wrapped around it here on, on gold equivalent ounces, where are you guys at today and where do you expect to be, say, in 24 months? Yeah, so this year is a, is a bit of a, obviously it's a bit of a stub year because we, we created the company um, back in, uh, well, officially in end of November, uh, end of May. Um, so we're looking at, in, so I'll talk in cash flow in terms of 2020, we're looking at probably 20 to $25 million of cash flow this year. For next year, which would be our first real year, uh, in terms of estimated de deliveries, we're looking at about 17,000 gold ounces and around just under 700,000 ounces of silver. So from a gold equivalent point of view, you're looking at 25,000 ounces. Um, and and the, the margins of the company, um, life of mine are around 77%. So, you know, it's, it's a very, very good business, uh, very high margins. Um, and really, you know, this is, as, as we pointed out, it's just a starting point. So we have six assets which are in production at the moment we have another two which are in construction right as we speak so we have the blybor mine in in south africa and we also have the woodlawn mine which is actually fully built in australia but still on current maintenance because of the the impacts of covid we strongly believe that both of those operations will be in 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 production within the next 12 months which would bring our our, our production profile closer to 75 to 80 percent in, in production from an asset stage point of view. So that's really, you know, we think that's going to even, you know, fuel, fuel our multiples even higher. Um, it's going to have a very big impact on our cash flows as well. Um, so in terms of that number, you know, the 25,000 ounce GEOs, that only um, only accounts for about 50% of, of the production at Blivor next year. And it's, you know, we think obviously with 77% with margins, depending on what your gold price is, in terms of cash flow and operating margins, you're looking at you know around 37 to 39 million dollars US. So very significant in terms of cash flow. Talk just briefly about competition here. As the market heats up, Vincent, you know that competition between these royalty companies will increase and for some will result in royalty companies paying up for assets just for the sake of growth. How will Nomad handle these market conditions while keeping the price paid for deals in check? Well, you know, we have a, we ha we have a slide in our in our investor deck, and I'm you know people could uh, could download it on on our website. But there's there's a royalty sector, um, I would say, market cap slide in there that shows how it's evolved over the last 15 years. So you've seen a market, you know, in aggregate, which was probably worth around two billion in 2004, and and at at the close of the last quarter on September 30th, it was now worth around 65 billion. Uh, so you've gone from you know two to three companies now to probably over 20 companies in in the royalty sector, uh, and and that really 
you know, I would say it really shows that this is something that the investors really like in terms of the low risk profile. But what that also does is it means these companies have more and more, um, you know, uh, means to, to buy things. And, and really, the, from a competition point of view, we've been directly involved since 20, 2014 in this sector. And we've never been this busy as a management team uh, as today. There has been a, a very big shift in terms of how companies um, now do project financing in the mining sector. So streaming and royalty um, is now part of the, the 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 project financing packages of these of these new mines. So typically, you know, 15 years ago, you would see debt and equity being the only two options. Now you have debt, equity, and also typically a streaming portion, um, which actually optimizes. Your, your 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 capital structure as a developer uh, because that cost of capital is actually lower typically than what debt is and uh, and sometimes equity so we you know we've we've never seen this much um, I would say product in the sector um, and I think a misconception of certain investors sometimes is they think you have 20 companies in the sector so therefore if there's a new deal the 20 companies actually bid on this one thing um, which very, very, very rarely happens. I would say that, you know, in the three deals that we've executed on so far this year, we were either alone or maybe had one or two more, um, you know, peers that were looking at that asset. So it's 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 all about having a team that has the ability to um, to, to 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 bring in new deals and have a rolodex, and, and that's what really makes the difference for 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 a royalty company is do you have the connections and you have the ability to sit down with the vendor um, and which we actually see them as partners because typically you know we we strongly believe we'll be able to do a second and third deal afterwards uh, with them. So are you able to sit down with a potential partner and really find a win-win solution? So from a competition point of view, you know, there's obviously eight companies, which, you know, we, we, we would consider ourselves now a mid-cap and then you have the, the big senior co companies. But on the lower end of things, I would say that the smaller companies don't necessarily have that ability to do big deals like we do because we have that cash flow and because we have that that um, that credit facility, which allows us to to go and bid on these things. So I would say, from a competition point of view, um, we actually think the current market is is really, it, it well, I mean, it's it's growing every day, um, and I think it actually creates more and more opportunities opportunities on a, on the monthly and a quarterly basis. Yeah, agreed. I think we still have a, a window here where value, really good value, can still be realized um, before, you know, the bull market gets into the kind of mid and later stages. Now, Vincent, as you know, a number of royalty companies have reiterated their focus on precious metals. As the precious metal sector continues to heat up and margins for potential deals decline as a result of competition uh, later stages, will a company look at base metals? like copper, like PGMs, zinc, as a place to potentially seal good value deals while companies on this side remain more in need of capital versus maybe potentially some of the deals that happen in the, uh, the precious metals side. What's your thoughts on that? So we're, we're definitely always going to be a very precious metal focused company. I mean, at the moment, we're 100% precious metal focused. We have, you know, the ability probably to look at, you know, some other commodities, but it'll never be. Um, I, I think the most important thing for us is understanding the transparency of the pricing structure of a commodity. So, 
if we were to look at another commodity, it'd have to be some type of LME traded commodity. So I would say that our, our, our third choice would probably be copper, you know, after gold and silver. Um, again, because, you know, in the intro, we discussed, the, the, you know, the EV revolution. And I think copper and nickel would probably be the two uh, commodities that really uh, benefit from from that that shift. Um, so those are probably things that we would look at. But in terms of, you know, the bulks or the the other battery metals, which are, are more exotic and have a very, I would say, difficult pricing mechanism, that's something that we won't look at. The, the, the benefit of having gold, silver, and I would say the base metals is that every day you have a spot price and it's un, you understand what you're getting into and what type of value you're able to to, to get for that pound of, of copper or, or that ounce of gold versus some of these other um, commodities, it's, uh, it's more difficult. Um, to understand. It's more of a black box type pricing mechanism. M&A in the sector. Do you see that some of the majors have interest in doing M&A with the smaller companies in the space, or do you see the mid-tier companies making the M&A moves to get into major status? Well, that, it's definitely been a sector that hasn't seen much M&A over the last 10 to 15 years. We There's been a few new entries, uh, companies that over the years, I would say once every two or three years, we saw a bit of M&A. Whether the, the big guys want to want to buy the smaller guys, who knows? Uh, what we could tell you is that Nomad, you know, we want to be uh, in a position to, to be a catalyst. So whether we end up buying or we merge or we we get bought by someone, I think there's definitely there there's definitely a need for a new um, I would say large mid cap. Um, so you know, right now I think by having you know, maybe a fourth larger player would 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 change things up a bit um, in in the sector, and I think uh, it would allow that new player to be even more competitive versus the larger the larger companies. And I think that would actually be good for the the various operators that are looking for financing because it allows them to to have another player to talk to. Um, the larger players have very specific things they're they're looking at when they're doing deals. Um, you know, so I think by having a a, a a new player with maybe more a more flexible way of looking at deals um, could definitely be a benefit. And really, from a, a mid cap point of view, by by scaling up, you do get you know closer to the the, the the multiples of the big guys. When you look at you know Franco, Wheaton, and Royal, they all trade between 2.1 and three and a half times NAV. Um, the mid caps typically trade between say 1.2 times and two times NAV. So by having that that new vehicle. Um, and having those passive funds and basically the funds that need to own these, these stocks fuel that natural uh, buying in, in, in your company, you should see a re-rating on the valuation point of view. Vincent, a few months back, we had uh, China Mali do a deal with, I think it was $550 million, a precious metal deal with Triple Flag, which still hasn't listed yet. What's your thoughts on working with Chinese companies and will Nomad look to do deals with Chinese companies if the right opportunities come along. Yeah, no, I, we, we saw that deal and, and, you know, it was a good deal. It was a, you know, it's a good operation in Australia. The, you know, there's, there's definitely some good, some good upside. And, and the great thing with those types of assets that they have mine lives, which are 50, 75 year long. So, um, you know, those are definitely attractive assets for, for royalty and streaming companies in terms of whether they're, they're Chinese or I, I would just, you know, maybe qualify them as private companies. If you look at our portfolio today, 
we have three companies um, that are private, which are our counterparties. Um, I think it's just you need to do your work on the quality of the management teams within those private companies. Um, obviously, the North American sector on the mining front, typically, you know, they're mostly all public companies. But when you look at it from a global point of view, there's a lot of private companies and a lot of private groups with a tremendous amount of money and and, and financial means um, to 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 operate these these companies uh, and these projects. So I would say that it, you really have to do your work on understanding what type of counterparty it is and what type of management and what type of technical team they they have. Uh, but when you look at at the mine at, at Bonacro, for example, which we own a stream on, um, this is a team that's been in Africa for years they they built Lumwana um for for Equinox which was ended up being sold to to Barrick um you've got the Blyvor team in South Africa which built built Ergo mines um and the the founder actually was was one of the discoverers of um the, the mine that was bought by Ashanti in uh, in Tanzania uh Gaeta so these are are groups that have a very significant amount of experience in the mining world in their various uh, jurisdictions and i think that's the most important thing so if you have a team that understands what they're getting into that you know has uh, a track record of th that's that's what we focus on and are you in a country where you have a mining culture that is existent and so that's the way we minimize risks uh, is we make we make sure that when we do these investments um, we understand uh, you know those different you know we go through the checklist and we make sure that uh, everything is answered properly yeah, I think there are some good Chinese companies, but there's also a lot of bad ones. And so I think it's on a case-by-case -case basis. Vincent, you mentioned jurisdictions a couple of times here. Is the company open to all jurisdictions or is there a specific objective for how you guys plan to diversify the company assets? We are open to most, but we're not open to all. Um, I think, you know, again, going back to, to, to what I just said regarding uh, jurisdiction and, and mining culture, I think that's the main thing is is are you investing in a country that has an existing, you know, mining culture? Uh, and if if that country's nationalized assets, you know, five times in the last 50 years, that's probably not something that's, you know, hits our radar. So, you know, but there's obviously places like, you know, the Middle East, the DRC, um, China, Russia, probably those those are areas that which we will not be investing in. Um, and but if you look at West Africa, you know. Yeah, there's been, you know, sometimes there's there's instability from a polit political point of view, but how many times did you actually see a, a mine shut down? And, you know, I would say that it's very, it hasn't much really happened. So those are the type of analysis that we do is we make sure that there's an existing mining culture, that it brings benefit to the community um, and that the community, community wants the project too. So I think that's uh, the things that we really focus on. Yeah, I think Venezuela probably wouldn't make the list. Now, Robert Friedland would disagree with you on the DRC, but let's take a look. You know, hopefully you guys could find something in Namibia. Um, I think that's a fantastic jurisdiction, Botswana. Yeah. And of course, you guys, there's some other good jurisdictions up there as well. Um, so Africa has a lot of promise. And as these metal markets heat up and prices get higher, uh, we know that governments in the past can get grabby and change their policies. So we've seen that before. Well, let's move on. Maybe just speak briefly about cost of capital. So when you guys are, you know, right now out there in the market, do you see that the cost of capital is is becoming more in the favor of the companies trying to develop these projects 
or do you see that the cost of capital is really still heavily in favor of the royalty companies on the other side? What's your thoughts just on cost of capital? Some of the traditional lending institutions, policy rates around the world where capital is becoming more loose and rates are, are declining from a government sense. What's your thoughts on cost of capital here? We've gone through obviously a pretty difficult period in terms of the gold sector in, in general um, over the past five, six years. So I would say that, you know, definitely the, the, the royalty and streaming companies had maybe much more to choose from and could be a lot pickier. Um, obviously with gold prices reaching 2000 and um, there's definitely been some type of, um, you know, renew, renewed interest for our sector. I still think it's very limited. We've seen very, uh, only a limited amount of, I would say, significant deal uh, financings happen. Um, so it's still, I don't think that the sector is out of the woods uh, yet in terms of, you know, just being able to rely on on equity financing um, f from a, from an operator point of view when they're looking at, at you know, developing new mines. Um, so I still think there's definitely a, a good way for for royalty and, and streaming companies to to invest. Um, and and also it it, co it goes back to optimizing the the cost of capital to the to the operator. Having a portion of perhaps what would naturally be a a, a debt investment from a bank um, go into a a stream could sometimes actually be much more profitable for the operator in the sense that the covenants are a lot looser. You know, we are partners. We are, you know, this is a life of mine investment in, in most cases. So it's, it's when you're talking about a long-term investment, we are the longest type of shareholders when we're investing in these projects. So, you know, this, so we want to make sure the, the mine operates as efficiently as possible, has the less hiccup as possible. Um, so we are fully aligned with the operators. Sometimes, you know, with, with, with bank debt, um, you know, there's a lot more restrictions on what they can do, what they can't do. You know, just an example on that. If, if say you're ramping up on a new mine and, you know, all of a sudden they start drilling an area, uh, where they find much higher grade and they say, you know, from, from an operational point of view that the operator says, maybe we should go and, you know, drill this out and maybe it'll be double the grade and, you know, we'll have a better, better feed to the mill. Well, if you if you're a streamer, you're like, yeah, absolutely, let's go there. However, the way the 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 bank structures are 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 done on the debt front, they're limited to a certain footprint, and you have to execute on the actual plan that that you put forward. So maybe that that new area which just got drilled, they actually can't spend the money because they have to get the the payback and they have to pay the bank as as quickly as possible. So that's where we are much more partners and much more aligned. Um, so. There's that, I think that attractiveness of financing through streams and royalties will never go away. Obviously, I think there's, there might be a bit more competition on the equity front, but I think of, you know, from an optimization point of view and minimizing dilution um, to, to, to current shareholders, I think there's always going to be a place for streaming and royalty um, for, for operators. Um, I think now, you know, the last 15 years has proven that um, there's a lot more interest and a lot more capital to deploy. So I think there's, you know, this is this is a very new sector. So I think we're just really in the beginning of um, of, of the sector per se. And I think we're going to see a lot more innovation and a lot more partnerships between the royalty companies and the mining companies. Agreed. And Vincent, with further capital needs uh, coming at the company as you guys continue to fund your your growth strategy, existing cash flows coming in. 
do you guys see that future deals will be done with cash and credit facilities, or do you also see that uh, some of these deals will continue to see the issuance of shares as in order to complete them? Well, for us, it's a, you know it's a, it's really um, I would say every every opportunity we look and evaluate differently. It, it always comes back to per share accretion. Um, truthfully, that's the main thing. Um, as we pointed out, you know the management team is you know the, the largest shareholder. Um, single shareholders of the company. So we think as shareholders first as well, we want to make sure that over time we keep growing that th those per share metrics and we, we, we execute on accretive deals. Um, we all, we're also very conscious that, you know, Orion is a 75% shareholder. So we want to make sure that they, um, you know, get diluted over time and that we create that liquidity as we, th that we discussed earlier. Um, so in the, in terms of the three deals that we did so far since, since the start of trading, um, you know, they were essentially about 90% all shares and then small portions in cash. I would say that, but we were able to execute on those deals at very attractive valuations versus where we were trading. So we, we strongly believe that those were very accretive deals. Um, to, to write a new stream, if you look at stream financings in general, they, they, they get priced between 0.9 and 1.1 times NAV. So if we're trading at one and a half times and we do these things, you know, we, we'll, we'll realize about half a turn of, of accretion. So, you know, it's a mix. It's really, it, it, it's, it, it's really every, every opportunity is different, um, but we will want to use our shares, I would say, in specific opportunities. And sometimes we'll use our credit facility and pay cash. Yeah, understood. Makes sense. And I think you have to do look at it on a deal by deal basis um, for the sake of long-term value. Well, talk about just briefly, then you know, all the companies mentioned strategic partnerships and teaming up. Can you just expand on that and, and what is meant here um, and maybe what an example of that might be just for purposes of, you know, obviously there's a big goal to work and partner with the companies that are part of your deals. But uh, do you also mean uh, potential teaming up with other royalty companies? What's your thoughts on that, uh, what you guys have said there? Yeah, so we, we touched on M&A earlier, which, you know, that's for, for Nomad and, and our peers to, to grow and, and to catch the, the big three. Um, in the interim, for us to, to, to be able to compete with the big three, you know, we need to have a, a better access to capital and be able to show that we uh, were able to, to compete on the bigger deals. Because what happens is if, if a company, as you pointed out on, you know, the deal that, that was done on with China Mali on the Australian asset, that was a $550 million check. At the moment, Nomad doesn't have the capacity to write a check that big. So, you know, if we're able to partner up with either our, our, our peers in the sector, so public, other public companies of our size or, or, or around there, or if we, you know, what we call the alternative, you know, providers of capital, like the private equity groups and so on. If we're able to partner up with some of those groups, we could potentially have the capacity of writing a 300 or 400 million dollar deal. Um, and, and what that means is that we're going to be invited in some of those processes, um, which, you know, are, are sometimes our more strategic type assets. So, but the great thing about doing that is when, when you, when you come to the end of it, you're able to say, well, maybe I want $40 million of exposure out of this $200 million deal, because, you know, we don't want too much of one asset having too much concentration within the entire portfolio. So that's where by teaming up with other with other peers, we're able to say, okay, you guys take 100, we'll take 50, the other part, party takes 50. So we've actually done that in the past. Uh, we've done it as, as you know, 
uh, even this summer on a few things we've looked at due to you know due diligence a few opportunities with with another partner um, and, and we strongly believe that I think from a go forward point of view um, it's something that should be seen in the sector um, as as at the end of the day our job as managers of a royalty company is to again to, to limit those different forms of of, of risks and asset concentration is one of those risks. So if we end up with an asset that represents, you know, 70% of our net asset value tomorrow morning, well, all of a sudden we're subject to whatever happens to that asset is going to impact our valuation. And, and that's where that's a, a situation we do not want to be in. Um, so we want to make sure that when we do these investments, it's on a risk adjusted basis. Yeah, very good points. And I certainly agree. Let's digress for a moment and talk about how you're investing in your own personal situation, Vincent. So besides being invested in Nomad, which I assume is your largest investment, how are you investing across the natural resource sector? What types of companies do you like personally? And are there some that come to mind in your own situation that you see as highly compelling? When, when I look at, at my personal investments, yes, Nomad is definitely the biggest one at the moment. And I think it always comes back to the same there, there's always the, the management, you know, is definitely always something that that's important when looking at investments. I've looked at, you know, whether there's a company called Champion Iron Ore that's also based out of Montreal, which uh, are doing great things, and the iron ore price is is doing very well at the moment. And so I'm sure they will have a a good. They're, they're definitely going through a good period. Uh, but management team and, and track records are, are always the most important thing. And really, I would say being able to understand the actual company and and underlying assets that that are within that that company sometimes you you go through a presentation or, or and you're, you're even after 30 or 40 minutes of going through the documentation you still don't fully grasp what exactly they're going at are, are they drilling are they developing are they building are they you know what's i think being able to have a very transparent way of, you know, understanding what they're going after and what's their deal, that that's something that's very important. And and what I like to see when I do investments is, you know, within the presentation, is there a slide on things, you know, what did they say they were going to do and what did they execute on? And what was, what was the timeline? Was it six months? Was it 12 months? Is it two years? Like, did they are they accountable to the things that they put forward in terms of goals? I think that's something that when you look at the successful companies in the space, they typically go through those, you know, goals and, and show, you know, did they, did they get there? Did they fail? Or if they fail, why, why did they fail? I mean, we're in a sector where exploration is not something that's, it's a science. And, you know, sometimes a great target and a great anomaly is, looks very good on paper, but, you know, once you test it, it might have, you know, nothing behind it so you should be able to sit in front of an investor and say look we had we did our work we, we identified an, an anomaly we found a few targets we drilled them there was nothing it's fine you know it's we need more of that but i think we need to be accountable as management teams to to really tell the the investor what's happening and what's the, the 12 months in front of us and what's the 24 months in, in front of us you know in terms of nomad we've, we're very focused and we've pointed out before we want to be part of a platform that's between say three and five billion within the next two to three years so how are we going to do that well m a partnerships co-investments those are you know we know that if we keep going uh that route we're going to be able to to execute on our plan you covered a lot of it here but just to reiterate one more time for potential investors in the audience listening why should they be looking hard at nomad today over the other peer names in the sector 
We're executing on, on what we feel is a very simple strategy. Um, we have a team that's been in, in this sector directly involved for the last six years. Um, it's a very steady business plan. You know, the main things that we're focused on is, you know, let's focus on producing assets or, or highly de-risked assets. Uh, let's make sure we keep a very diversified portfolio. So increase the number of assets, increase the number of jurisdictions, increase the number of operators so that we don't have too much concentration in one specific area. Um, stay focused on precious metals, so gold and silver in our case. Um, really focused on low GNA, so that's always going to be you know a, a very strong focus. Return capital to shareholders, so come in with the with the significant dividend and, and really keep building on that. And and really the main thing is thinking like owners and thinking like shareholders first. So in everything we do, and that means in in terms of the investments we do, in terms of the compensation that we 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 pay ourselves, in terms of returning the capital. So that's it's it's keeping the shareholder first and, and really top of mind. That's those are the main criteria why I would say somebody should invest in Nomad. And and we're a very energetic energetic team. And we have a lot, a lot of things to do. So I would say from that end, that resumes why somebody should invest in Nomad. And how can interested investors reach out to you and the company? You could reach us uh, through our, our, our nomadroyalty.com website. Um, there's actually a, a link as you open the, the website, which uh, allows, you know, whether you're a retail investor, institutional investor, or just somebody that's looking to ask questions around the business, um, you could book us through book a management table. And, you know, that sends us a an invite and we'll send you all the details to um, to connect either through uh, the internet platform or, or through a phone call. So, you know, we want to make sure we we are as accessible as possible as a management team and, um, you know, looking forward to meeting uh, any potential shareholders uh, down the road. Well, Vincent, good discussion. Really appreciate you coming on and best of luck over at Nomad and look forward to uh, speaking again soon. Thank you very much for having me.